Welcome to Recovery Uncovered, your all things recovery podcast. Recovery Uncovered is produced by MHAB Enterprises, a division of the Northeast Group of Companies located right here in Plattsburgh, New York. I'm your host, Mike Carpenter. Affectionately known as MHAB Mike. And I'm your co-host, Betsy Vicencio. Affectionately known as BV the Normie. We have one goal in these podcasts, and that's not to suck. Thanks for tuning in. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Recovery Uncovered. This is episode probably 16, I 17. Think so. 16, like right, Brittany? Is it 16 we're on? 16, <laughs> yeah, we're, doing, we're living with, we're rolling with 16. <laughs> we'll cut the Sackler family one out if we need to, if nah, we need the numbers to be good. I want that one. So that one was spicy. This is episode 16. I am Mike Carpenter, your host. Affectionately affect- known as MHAB Mike. And this is my sidekick, Betsy Vicenzio. Good morning, everyone. Affectionately known as BV the Normie. Normie? Because you're somewhat normal, although normal? I think we've determined that that's, we're using that phrase <laughs> loosely. <laughs> today, it's, it's hot in our room today. Uh, we did not Kelly plan and Bryn this. did not well. get prepared for air conditioning, so I think they're sick of us talking for an hour. They want it to be shorter. So this they is what they they're doing. They did it, this If they make it 100 purpose. degrees, it'll be but like, who oh, knew we were going to have 95-degree temperature the first freaking week in June? This is oppressive, man. Climate change Should is be real. Back. You should be back in Aruba. Aruba. It was only like 80 degrees. It was 80 at 6 o'clock in the morning, and it made it to the temperature that it is right here in this room I, by like 10 I o'clock. I played golf Sunday morning, and, and the first, you know, eight, nine holes were great because it was 7.30. By the time it hit 10 o'clock, it was like you impressively. Were I was like, yeah. I'm done. I, I don't even want yeah. to play. I, I, moved, I moved my daughter in Albany on Sunday between the hours of 10 and 4. she get evicted? In the, no, she got Do a, something no. wrong. No, <laughs> she moved into a bigger, better apartment. It's beautiful. Did she get a victim? Is this the good kid or the bad kid? This is the one you love. They're this both is the, good this kids. Is the good one. I love both of my children. They're both my favorite. She's your favorite. So today we have a very interesting podcast for you. First off, I want to say congratulations, Betsy. You got us up to number eight on the Feedspot Top 100. Feedspot! Uh, This podcast, right? Podcast for recovery. Out of 100 podcasts. Out of the top 100. Out of the top top 100 podcasts in the world, we are, we're number eight. We're number eight. And so my question when Bryn sent us that email and she was so proud of it is I'm like, well, what about the other seven that are ahead of us? Why are we not? <laughs> why are we not number one? We should be number one. What are we going to do? Uh, maybe the only way to be number one is if I kick you off, and I just do this by myself. Well, alrighty then. You're, it would. You're out. Okay. <laughs> BV uh, out. <laughs> all right. So we have a we have a great, very entertaining podcast. I think today and very informative. We have a informative a, today. This is some serious topics that we're talking about. We today. have a this guest. This is a big deal. We're gonna probably talk about a ton of subjects with regards to this, but I'm really interested. So I think for the first few minutes of this podcast, we're just going to let Mr. Freeman run off and tell us what he actually does and a little bit about himself. And would you like to introduce him? Well, I I mean, I will a little bit. I'm going to let Greg do some of his own introduction, but I think the topic today has to do with recovery and healthcare and and probably of all of, uh, of all of, in particular this year, um, 
whether it's a it's a silent problem or whether it's not you know healthcare workers have uh, have been some of the most uh, one they were essential workers throughout the pandemic and worked incredibly hard but had to face i think all of the challenges of covid on both a professional and a personal level i know that the work that you do um speaks about or, or helps people in healthcare and and uh, and recovery um, but I'll let you introduce yourself and talk about the work that you're doing. Well, well, wait a minute, before you do that, so Greg was going to run out and get his notes because he said he had a lot of notes for this, and we're like, oh no, you're fine, we're just going to talk, and then I lean over and you got a whole page of notes and shit that you're going to ask him? I'm Is not really? going to ask, this, this was... Like, when I prepare, I don't prepare <laughs> like God. you do. I prepare like me. I, I read about it, and then it, it just helps me formulate my thoughts. I don't. This is not a list of questions for you. This is not going to be the Spanish Inquisition. This is just me kind of understanding a little bit about what's going on recovery and healthcare and healthcare work. She set you up for this, but I'm going to protect you. Don't worry. Oh you and I are allies. None of that I, got, I, got you, I got you covered. All I can say is I hope your podcast group doesn't go down to 15 or 20. 20 after a year, it's, <laughs> I, I hope it doesn't drop after That's this, right. so. Greg Freeman took us down the <laughs> right. ranking, so, so you, better, right. you better be really great, yeah, Greg, we're That's counting it. on you. We can't so, get much further into the sewer than we are right now, we're, uh, we're good to go, I think. So Greg, uh, Greg Freeman, you are the, uh, the mani regional manager regional for manager. occupational health and wellness. Can you, why don't you tell us a little bit about what that means and, and what that, what, 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 what you do? So regional manager is is a part of University Vermont Health Network, uh, specifically for Champlain Valley Physicians Hospital in Plattsburgh, New York, and Alice Hyde Medical Center in Malone, New York. Um, we, together with my teams, have built um, occupational health and wellness departments, really focusing on the health and wellness of our employees and also working with community employers to be able to help support their health and wellness as well for their employees. No kidding. Yes, so sir. So it's not just for the hospital employees. You're out there in the field. We are. Wow. We are. So, um, so a little bit about myself. Um, I've been at the hospital. I'm Canadian. Uh, I drive back and forth every day. Uh, I've been working at CVPH for uh, 23 years. Wow. Uh, a number of different positions starting in the emergency room for about 10 years. And uh, when, we, when we look at addiction and, and uh, struggles that folks have, as healthcare workers, we build our own perceptions of what that is. And it really comes down to what your exposure's been. Um, so working in the emergency room, I had my own perceptions, right? I mean, we had folks that were struggling with addiction. You knew that, and they would come to the emergency room. It wasn't until my brother um, that was struggling with uh, addiction as well came and asked my wife and I, my wife's a, a registered nurse as well, if we would take care or help him through his um, through his uh, medical support and just support for himself. Um, so we did that. He was on about 1,300 milligrams of, of opiates a day. Wow. And that had started about 10 years prior uh, after a car accident. And 
as time went on, needed to increase the dosage. Um, so that's where he was at. He was really couldn't see life beyond that. And so we worked with him and tried to get him into rehab and detox. And uh, we had him connected twice, once in California, once in Buffalo. And the day before he would go, he would be so, so much anxiety within himself that he would just shut down. He couldn't go. He, he just couldn't face it. He couldn't um, think of what life would be without having the pills there to support him. You know, the beauty of this podcast is we had no idea what this was going to take off, like how this was going to go. And so for you to come out and kind of give this introduction and talk about your brother and the inability to go to a rehab, it, it points out a problem that we've talked about multiple times here, which is when somebody's at the point where they say, I'm ready to go, we need to have a bed for them right then. We need to get them in the car and go because six hours, 12 hours a day later, whether it's they feel better or they have too much anxiety or whatever, then they're not ready to go. Like it's exactly. one of the flaws in the whole it treatment is. for you know yeah. treatment industry. We don't have enough beds to be able, when people say, I wanna go, to put them in a car and drive them and say, here you are, you're, you're here now. It's a, you know, it's a great way to start this discussion because it's such a profound piece. So, um, so we were there, I would go with his doctor's appointments and, and, and support him through. Um, and in June, the year after, my wife and I, our house burned down. And so it displaced us. So my brother had moved uh, in the apartment beside us to be close to us to, so that we would be there to help support. Um, we ended up for eight months living at my wife's family's house, which was about 12 miles away. So my brother came to me and said, I came here for you to be here and help support me. And, and at that point I was so overwhelmed. We didn't have a house. We ended up going through legal issues with it. And so I said, I don't even know how, how to fix what we're going through, let alone support you. Um, and six weeks later, he committed suicide. Oh no, oh my. So obviously the guilt and you know the last conversation the last interaction the last all of those um i was supposed to go with him to a doctor's appointment and i didn't make it because we were working on the house i had forgot horrible i, I mean no excuse um and his doctor told him he was cutting off his his um pills and he came home and he hung himself he just could not imagine what that was going to be like. So he never made it to rehab. Never did. Never did. So you would convince him that this is something that you should do. You'd get to the to getting in the car, and his anxiety would not allow. It him. just wouldn't allow him to follow through. Oh, how devastating! It, it really was, and you know, you're a nurse. You're you're supposed to be able to identify this. You're supposed to protect your family. I was his caregiver. So all of that was just just immense. Did um, that did that drive you into wanting to work in the field more? Did that those specific events say, okay, I need to be involved rather than emergency room care. I need to do something that's helping people like this. So they absolutely did. They took my um, my perceptions from when I first was becoming a nurse working in the ER and changed it to I was going with him. To the ER, not not here 
in the US, but in Canada. And I would see the way he was treated. I would see the eye rolling, the, the lack of empathy that existed. And again, that's in Canada. Um, but, but I really, it, it made me understand how folks get treated, how they feel. Um, and then there was, so in trying to recover through that, my wife and I, um, CBPH uh, has employee assistance providers in the community, um, which is private counseling sessions. And my wife and I each went to one um, and they really helped us reconnect, be able to sort of uh, grow through what we were living. Um, and then I was approached by folks that have the Clinton County um, Suicide Prevention Coalition and asked if I would um, partake in the first annual Evening of Healing. Mm. That, was, that was about four months after my brother had passed away. So everything was so raw and the, the guilt and everything was just right there. We, we got together as a group, the folks that were going to be the presenters to share their stories. We got together a week or so prior and everybody was sharing their story and um, I was so overwhelmed. I, I had to go into the atrium and I cried and cried. Mm -hmm. And I came back in and they asked, finally it was my turn, they asked if I would um, participate and uh, share my story and I did. And I, I left so much guilt, feelings that I hadn't shared with anybody to seven people that I never knew. And I walked out of there, that was my first day of recovery. Mm. Being able to share that and be able to identify how important it is to share your story with others. You know, there's a whole community, you know, the whole recovery community and whether it's 12 step, which are the big guys or any of these other things, they all just talk about connection and we have something in common. And if you have something in common and you can share that with other people that you have it in common with, it alleviates the burden. Like it doesn't, it's not, it's not rocket science, how therapeutic and, and healing that really is. And, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued a little bit. And, and if you don't mind me, you know, probing a little, the, uh, the whole idea of stigma and watching your brother being a healthcare professional and watching your brother when he goes into the emergency rooms and the emergency room staff looking at him and going, he's a pill seeker, he's this frequent flyer, he's in here all the time, he's just an addict, he's any of that stuff, has been one of the things that we at MHAB, this podcast, me personally, have been fighting on the front lines for years. That, you know, if it's a, if it's a cancer patient who goes into the emergency room every two months, nobody rolls their eyes, nobody looks at them and says, look what they're doing. It, it's, they're, they're, have cancer came back but when it comes to the addict or mental health or any of those things there is this incredible stigma even in the field and I think it's better today but certainly and you saw it firsthand and got and get to address it from the other side yes it really it helped me grow as a person it helped me yeah. grow within my profession to really have a bigger picture of nobody chooses it's true right this is a disease. It's funny. I didn't wake up. It's it's a that's a great statement. You know, I, there used to be an ad 
that talked about that. Like, no, I didn't, when I was eight years old, I wasn't going, oh my God, I wanna be a, a homeless junkie living on the street where everybody's disowned me. Those weren't my dreams. I had the same dreams that other people did. And then for whatever reason, a series of events take us down a different path and we wind up in that predicament. And then when you're going to get help and you can't get the necessary help that you need or people are less willing to help you because they don't understand, it's just a double whammy. Like, make no mistake, I, I, I don't even know your brother, but I can assure you that those feelings that he had before he took his life were the same feelings that I had in the years of my using. I already felt like a piece of shit. I knew I was doing wrong. I wanted to be different. I wanted to be a good brother and a good son and have a good life and all that. I just couldn't get to that place to make those changes. I, I'm assuming there's he, probably he a lot of that. He would struggle. Yeah. He had daily battles within himself. Um, I don't want to be labeled. Um, I'm, I'm not uh, dependent. I'm to the point where he would stop taking any medications until the point he was so sick. Yep. He had no choice. Yep. It, horrible, horrible, horrible disease. So Greg, the Evening of Healing Stories of Strength uh, is, a, is an annual event that our community holds where people do come and share their story uh, about whatever it is that they've, they've experienced. And I'm so touched by the fact that for you, that was your opportunity to start healing. What, what year did you, uh, do you remember what year? 2014. 2014. Were you in the role that you're in now? I was. As uh, when you did that. That's I was. Absolutely. Wonder. And, and I uh, was. You know, I think that for this podcast, I think it would be great for us to bring all of the founders of the Evening of Healing Stories of Strength to really talk about some recovery journeys that I think this community has taken. That's been an incredibly powerful event um, that has helped so many people really navigate the, the pain, the guilt, the suffering in, in the aftermath of whatever the, the tragedy is that you've endured. So It was really the turning point and that really was the foundation of why I'm so committed I watched our family, I watched his two sons, I watched my parents, what they had went through, through the loss, the guilt that each of them really had, right? I mean, we all, whether you, whether you say it's true or not, we all have an event or, or interaction that we look back on and say, wow, I wish I hadn't, that wasn't my last interaction or that, right? I mean. Um, because make, you don't have second chance. Right. And make no mistake, mental illness, addiction, depression, all, they're family illnesses. They have a dramatic effect on all of the other people that are oh. in the family, not just the person that's, that's afflicted. And sometimes we miss that. We miss how much um, damage this does actually to the rest of the family. Yeah. You're right, it's, it's one of those things. And I will, I will tell you in short order, you've become one of my, my favorite people in this community now. I, I put you in there with you know, Dina Giltz McCullough and Ed Kirby, who uh, you know, for different reasons, one lost a son to an overdose, one lost a son to suicide. And, and those people have stood up and done exactly what you did today, which is stood or and, and back six or seven years ago, stand up and speak about it and say, this is what happened, this it's is what I'm going through. This is, because that's the only way we normalize it. You know, one of my kind of platforms has always been, okay, so I've had some success. I've, you know, gotten out in the public a little bit. I've made some money, blah, blah, blah. But it's, 
we're beginning to normalize the fact that people who are addicts or struggle with mental illness or any of that are not different or bad people. They're not, there are some, certainly there are some in the world who are just bad people, but by and large, we're all people who, if we can get just beyond, just over that hump that your brother wasn't able to make it to, you can have this really good constructive life. And, and until we begin to embrace that, we continue to have people that we're losing. And right. it, it's tragic, tragic. It really is. Right. Yeah. I think you're, you know, if, if he didn't carry the, the, his own guilt and shame and he had other venues that he felt comfortable to talk more about what was happening in his world, there would have been more opportunity for him to seek help. Seeking help would not have been a, seeking help would not have been a failure. But, you know, right. the first day of whatever the rest of his life could have been. And, and so I think that you're doing great work with regard to that. And I think that that's our goal is to, is to eradicate stigma and make, make these conversations allowed. Make them, make them you know. You know, when we, when we, so a couple things, and these are the cute. First off, I can't have the healing people come here because they never asked me to speak. So oh I didn't get to speak Lord. for them. They don't get to come be on my <laughs> podcast. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> so, really? I, just can't, I can't do it. Um, but we've had, we're going to have them all on here anyway under different things. Um, I can't believe you just said that. <laughs> they didn't let me speak. So they didn't let me speak, so I'm not inviting them here. So Too bad. to all of the Evening of Healing Stories of Strength people, you just might want to consider adding Mike Carpenter to your repertoire. It's too late now. I don't want to go. Oh, now you've had to say it out loud. late now. We're beyond it. I don't want to go speak. Um, you know, I was a speaker at the Evening of Healing Stories. I know you were. I don't want to hear it. I do, I do want to say to you that I, it's... When we do these podcasts, we literally bring people on here with no agenda. We have no, we don't come, Betsy has some questions because that's the way she operates. And I love the fact that they go in these kinds of directions, which are really about how you get to know people. Like, quite truthfully, you honestly could have come here as a representative from the hospital, which you are, and talk about, you know, occupational health and leave that whole story right off and not even not even bring it up we would have never known I, and i never would have thought more or less of you just we never would have known and you didn't do that and that's why i love these so much it's like wow that this is because this is what we're trying to do we're just trying to normalize the fact that people struggle with things in life and i love the fact that you said my recovery started when i do that you know there's always been this idea that recovery is about, well, he was addicted to this and that's what he's recovering from. Every one of us has some type of stuff that went on in our life that we have to learn how to deal with and call it recovery, call it whatever. We all are dealing with things on a regular basis Absolutely. just to be able to function. And it, it just, whenever we hear that from people that we don't think of, it just makes me, I get happy about it. One of the things you said that you're, uh, you and your wife are both a nurse, nurses and so when you have this type of a health care tragedy or a health event tragedy uh, and I think uh, I think you feel it on a completely different level than people that don't have a medical background or you feel a different layer of responsibility absolutely do you think that's something that you see often in the healthcare industry with the the people that are working um, I believe so. at the hospital I believe so what are the what are the can I ask what the strategies are or the things that you all are doing at at the at the CBPH and Alice Hyde to to help combat? So, so the f first thing that I wanted to really share was um, a couple of years ago to try and heighten um, awareness, try to educate our leaders how to recognize folks that are struggling. Um, we had. A program that was uh, caring for the caregiver 
and really what it was was myself and three of our staff members that have went through treatment been successful to return only to I, I mean just be so amazing in their roles and and their recovery has been so wonderful that they felt like they wanted to share um, with everyone um, because CBPH was there to help support them during that time. Up until a couple of years ago, the, the health insurance companies were not obligated to pay for an inpatient treatment stay unless you had failed outpatient. Now, how absurd was that? That's crazy. Mm -hmm. um, so the hospital would just put up the money um, for these inpatient stays and pay for them on the, on the employee's behalf. And the reason that that was important is any obstacle that anyone comes up with, you have to tear that down immediately yep. mm -hmm. and, and to help support them in that direction to recovery. Um, so these individuals had been supported in that, uh, in that way and they were so appreciative that they wanted to share that. Um, so I had them sit in front of 150 leaders at an all leaders meeting and they shared their stories right from first what happened, tragedies within their lives, their recovery and where they were today and there was not a dry eye. Yeah. I mean the strength that those individuals had to have to be able to be so open and raw and share their stories, their intimate stories with the leadership. Their leadership mm -hmm. was tremendous. Um, and then after that, we uh, had group meetings for staff, all of our staff across the three shifts, really trying to help share the word that we are there to support. We have the ability to help you, your family member, through um, whatever that is that you're struggling with. And that's our e employee assistance program is amazing. I know at least one of those people, and I think I know probably all of them that spoke at yours, and, and you're right, they are tremendous, at least the what I'm thinking of is tremendous member of the recovery community and has been for years. And oh my fabulous. gosh, yeah. oh my gosh, yeah. no. we were so fortunate. I feel like I'm a board member at the hospital. I feel like we saw a video. Did you all make a video, uh, some outtakes of we all did. of those meetings? I mean, it was really, uh, yeah. for me in particular, but I, I know for all of the other board members that got to see it, it was just an incredibly well done um, video production, I think, of all of, of, of these stories. Um, and done really with the healthcare slant that that was just I mean it was it was it was impactful and it was right. really trying to just build awareness yep. to, to yours to what you're saying normal normalize, normalize it, right yep. um, share with folks that if you are struggling you do have some place to go right. that will help you right we're not going to pass judgment on you we're not going to do any of those things and you know it's one of the it's one of the crazy pieces of addiction kind of is that you you don't want to pass it, like the way that I live kind of in recovery is is the addiction explains the way that I used to be but it doesn't excuse the behaviors that I did to do it and, and that's one of the hard parts like it, it 
when I, like I think about it in terms of healthcare, if you're a healthcare worker and you happen to, you know, steal narcotics from the healthcare system that you work in, which I know happens, you have to be responsible for that, but that doesn't mean you should be judged or that your life should be ruined because of that. You have to look at it as it was an illness that forced you to do that, and you still have to be able, and that's always been kind of the rub with addiction, is that people think it's a choice. You know, when you when your brother needed to get high, when he needed to have his opiates, and he couldn't get them, there are no options. We we steal, we do whatever, because that dope sickness of whatever it is 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 just too powerful. It it, it just doesn't matter. It's not he's not sitting there going, I can't do this. It's right. a, you have to. And when we can get people to understand that, that's when we begin to be able to ratchet down that kind of judgment piece that goes with it. Let me ask you: In the world of healthcare, is is addiction more prevalent than in regular society? Less prevalent? Is there no real distinction? Do you have any idea? kind of thought about that is it is it is it just part of normal society and the fact that people work in it doesn't really make a difference so I think it's more prevalent just because the accessibility mm-hmm. is there um, COVID has increased uh, life stressors for for Right, what his, it has brought on to us. Yeah. Um, we have folks that were functioning, um, struggling with addiction, but able to function. Uh, we've I've seen uh, a pattern of when we laid individuals off because we we last year we had to shut services down right. because right. Uh, that's just where New York State Department of Health and COVID led us to. Um, so in doing that, now all of a sudden you have folks that have struggled with addiction um, that their normalcy would be to get up, get cleaned up, and go to work. They're now stuck at home. Isolated. They're isolated. Um, and the drinking or whatever else was just there. And so um, the... The fallout from that certainly was a lot of folks, their disease progressed quickly because of that. We saw in the, in the world of recovery, so people that have been clean for a while, we saw relapse numbers go up dramatically in, in people, and even in people that had had multiple years in recovery for a lot of that same thing. You know, my, my friend Dennis King from Champlain Valley always talks about the opposite of, you know, addiction is connection. And, you know, for us, people like me that are afflicted, your brother, other people at the hospital, isolation is such a scary thing because we crave it on one level, like the disease tells us to crave it, but we understand how really, really, really dangerous it is for us to be in that isolated state. So you're on this edge and then COVID comes and my my wife who's also in recovery said COVID is is like made for people that are struggling with addiction because it's justification for I'm not allowed to leave my house so I can just sit home and drink or get high all day. It yeah. really was kind of the double whammy yeah. overall. So I'm not surprised that during COVID. And then for you guys that had, it was stressful for me, stressful for Betsy, stressful for all of us. I think healthcare probably stressful times 10 for having to deal with all the issues around COVID and then you throw in the regular life stuff as well. Right. I'm sure you saw some increase over the last year. Yes. 
So can I, I, I do have a couple of questions. Of course you that, do. That, but they, they, seem to, they seem to blend a little bit with where we are. Um, I think that, uh, you know, as we're talking about COVID, um, we have this, this term that has been used in, you know, healthcare heroes, and there's been a whole bunch of marketing and promotion about, you know, our healthcare workers being heroes. My question is, today, is there now a negative impact um, as we go back to normal, or has that kind of, uh, that, 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 that nomenclature, those words kind of created some type of an identity crisis at all, or, or an increased pressure in healthcare, or do we feel, do we feel good about that? So, um, healthcare workers have been tremendously affected by COVID. And when I say that, um, really because of the high intensity, the change that COVID brought, um, because it was ever evolving. There, was, uh, there were changes that were coming from the state that were changing how we practice. It affected how we took care of people m multiple times a week. Um, so there were pressures to try and evolve quickly. Um, and that didn't just happen for two weeks, that went on for a year. Mm -hmm. So um, we, to try and help combat, because certainly understanding that um, the more folks get wore down, and I know that's really a bad terminology, but you know, emotionally sure. uh, tired, exhausted, um, it takes less of an event to be that moment, right? That 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 changing moment. So we um, have an amazing chief of psychology, Aaron Stewart, that was um, hired in probably two years ago. And within her job description, she has a link into occupational health and wellness to support employee wellness. Um, one of her uh, first focus was creating a critical incident stress debriefing team. Uh, we were able to get a grant uh, and we brought in one of the founding members of CISM, which is a, an accredited program that really builds structure around debriefings, defusings. And the focus of those debriefings, defusings, aren't really if there's a traumatic event that happens, it's not focusing on the, the functions of how people responded. It really is to tear down how did it affect you as an individual. Mm -hmm. Looking at self-care, looking at are you sleeping, are you eating, um, and then being able to pull out those individuals that are truly having a crisis uh, as a result of that event and getting them connected to, to our counselors and that sort of thing. So. So far, we um, started that up. There, we have 37 members that went through the training and uh, members from Alice Hyde, from CVPH, uh, and we have some county EMS and fire that were in the training as well because we'd like to m create this as a, a community support as well beyond just CVPH and Alice Hyde. Um, and so really, we've had 29 uh, 29 activations, and within those activations are multiple responses. So if we have um, 
uh, one of our coworkers that pass away, or a, 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 a right uh, a trauma within the ER or within one of the units, or a child passing away. All of those events are so traumatic. Mm -hmm. um, so being able to respond with an edu educated group to be able to help, even just opening the conversation, and and. Uh, when we go in, the, the team leaders, they take, we take our shirts off, we take our badges off, and we have a special team uh, shirt with a logo on it. So we're not identified as where you come from. Right, like you're not the guy you, that's in charge. Yeah, you are not a responder the group, just, to this yeah. critical incident. Um, the outcomes of those have been tremendous. And um, we've seen where we've responded to again uh, incidents in same locations and the groups that attend just continue to grow and grow which is huge because right i mean obviously they feel like there's a benefit to this it's so funny that you're you're taking and you know finally healthcare and maybe it's been going on for a while is starting to get away from just the medical scientific approach and taking that more holistic approach that not that medicine and science aren't important and certainly have you know transformed the world but the holistic piece is a huge part of it like you you, you know we we're beginning to, to recognize that right we have to recognize right. what they're going through and yeah. be there to support them you know we we live in this age where it's just well just give them a pill and it'll take care of it and when you you really talk and start diving into somebody you can take care of a lot of this stuff just by them recognizing that you're not alone. You're not the only person who this has ever happened to. You're not crazy because you're feeling that way. You're not, it's okay. And we're just here to help you work through that so that you can function in the world. Exactly. Yeah. You know, people feel isolated Amazing. a lot of times after a significant event and you get everyone together. One person opens up. Next thing you know, everyone is sharing because they're like, oh my gosh, I feel the same way. Right, being able to make those connections are so huge. Ed Kirby, whose son died of, a, of an overdose, was here a month ago or so doing a podcast. And he talked about, even after his son died, how inferior he felt when he went to places with parents of other kids who were off in college and all that. And how he just carried that burden around until he started talking about it. And then when he started talking about it, the burden became lessened and he recognized like it's it's just such an important component and i'm it so really happy is. to hear that cvph really and and you guys do such a great job and i think you have a program up there uh, uh, i think it's called span or spam or uh, am i close on the acronym yeah for uh yes sir it's span uh statewide peer assistance right for nurses right that so part of our so if folks come and ask for help or are referred in um we certainly support my first real step is when they're in my office is to connect with someone that has already uh, been in their place right been through recovery and i'll actually ask someone to come and join if if the person feels comfortable with that sure. because it really adds a layer of understanding where that person is in that moment um, as much as i have experienced what i have with my brother I wasn't in his shoes, right? So being able to make sure that we have someone there that can be truly recognizing and helping that person move forward is important. Um, certainly, I'm not the one that evaluates what that person's needs are right there. So it's really connecting with our community providers to say, 
can you see this person, evaluate what their need is, inpatient, outpatient, whatever that is, um, and then helping them get into some place. We do have a, 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 a lot of local providers that we work with, but I also work with, and have more recently sort of stayed with, Marworth. It's a- Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. I know them well. Um, Specialize in your field, right? They Specialize do. for they people do. that they work have a healthcare in healthcare line. Healthcare yep. They have a know. badges line for yep. EMS and police yep. and fire. And I, I have to say our success rate has at least doubled. Yep. Oh, wow. Because when folks come back and say, that's, I connect with those people yep. because they do function, they do hold professional jobs, they do, right? And, and yet they struggle with what I'm struggling with. Yep. Um, so we've, so really has been really successful. Yeah, I know a couple of people in, in your field that have gone through that place in Pennsylvania and raved about it, said it was, and I know a couple that had gone through other rehabs and they said, listen, the other rehabs were great, but this one gave me people who work in the same field as me that kind of understood we, you know, it, it, it's like anything. Like if you put people together that have similar interests, similar likes, those kinds of things, they typically have an ability to talk more to each other. Exactly. Not that they can't relate to other people that are struggling, but so yeah, I'm familiar. I was gonna ask you about that. Some of the statistics that I read is that 20% uh, of all nurses struggle with a substance use disorder. And it's not, you know, when we talk about healthcare workers, we're not not just talking about nurses or, or we're also talking about physicians. And one in 10 physicians fall into drug or alcohol abuse in yeah. their career. And, and if you think about how dangerous that is, a prescription, you know, a, a physician has the ability to write scripts, so they're able to manipulate the system, not to mention they have the ability to write scripts to other people. So it really does, that whole thing becomes a much bigger issue than just the fact that somebody in that arena is struggling with addiction. Absolutely. Yeah. Thing, the statistic that I found interesting, and I guess I'm asking you for validation, um, it, it did say that 71% of physicians who participate in treatment and monitoring have a lower rate of, of relapse. 71% of them are still sober, licensed, employed after five years if they seek help. So for a community to have normalized these life traumas, tragedies, diseases, and give people a place where they can go to say, um, I need help, and they can get the help they need, their life can continue on. It's really when we try to shroud it in shame yes. and guilt and silence that that nothing but tragedy is going to continue to, to grow. Is that, do you find we, that to be the? We are so fortunate um, in New York State because we have um, the Professionals Assistance Program, which is a program that um, folks that are struggling can surrender their license. They're not losing their license, they're surrendering it, um, identifying that they are in treatment and help and they work with someone at the hospital, and as they progress through treatment and are successful, they, they, they never are not able to do their job. There may be limitations in what they're able to do, um, but they can continue their, their profession and be successful. And That's right, I'd heard about that. As long as they make that voluntary, yeah. it's, not a, it's not a punitive, it's yeah. more of a, okay, we're gonna- Let's get you help. Let's yeah. get you help and let's yeah. walk through it and we'll get yeah. you back to exactly being reinstated. Right. But yes, you know what, I had heard that. Which Is that not a national 
movement? Is that only a statewide? That's a state program. Yeah. So there's probably still some other states, states where there's there's penalty that. for you there know for, well for being be. human and having a human event like addiction right. or a mental a mental health illness that. Uh, that Just kind of anecdotally, do you do you think that in healthcare, not that there's really a distinction, but I guess on some level there is. Are there more people that you would categorize as struggling with alcohol or more people that are struggling with drug addiction that work in the field, or is there not really a way to kind of determine that? I don't know that there's the way to determine that. I, I think um, I I'd certainly in the folks that we work with, um, I would say drug addiction is maybe more prevalent than alcohol. Maybe and easier to mask, maybe easier. I think the alcohol yeah. may be easier. I, so I don't, I don't know how to answer that, but mm -hmm. I know the folks that we've worked with, I would say there are more individuals that struggled with addiction, drug addiction to drug than alcohol. Than yeah. alcohol. Do you think, and that may just be because, you know, kind of alcohol use in general is more allowed and drug use is is a hot button topic and and i think it does present i mean some there's some legal limits to the amount of drugs that you can access even if you're a patient legally getting medication prescription medication so it may be it may be tied in i guess my question back to you is where do you think based on what you know from the recovery side so i, I think that i think that you're you're probably right in that alcohol being more accepted is typically probably a longer point for people to get to need help. People can drink excessively. I think drugs, especially in healthcare, because it's all tied together. Like I, I know a lot of people who work in the healthcare field who are in recovery who had a drug problem, who never took drugs from the hospital or did any of that. They bought it on the street like for everybody sure. else does. Absolutely. But I think the idea that that because they work in healthcare, they have access to it, the the it's heightened. Like anytime somebody in healthcare comes into recovery, the first question that people ask them when they're talking to them is, were you stealing drugs at the hospital? Like it, it, it's almost like you just expect that. If they work in the hospital, that must be how they got addicted. And that's, that's not necessarily- That's actually very few and right, far between. Right. That's actually right. really, uh, right. as, as weird as that yeah. may sound because of the accessibility, right? But yes. yeah, that's it's part and it's part of the stigma piece. It's part of that that judgment that people who don't work in the field make just because they lump healthcare and narcotics together. So they they look at it and go, if that's a drug addict, they the only way they could have been doing it was getting it from the hospital. It's another one of those things that things like this are great for because we can start breaking that down. That that's not actually what's happening. Those people right. are just like every other person who's addicted to drugs. They go to the dealer on the street corner or whatever and they, I mean, that's what happens. It's right. not necessarily abuse of their license or whatever the case is. So we do have, so the second, uh, second group that uh, we work with, so there's a professional assistance program. There's also SPAM. So that's under NISNA, so New York State Nurses Association has a group um, that they um, have as in a statewide peer assistance program for nurses. Um, and what they do, it's really a peer-to-peer -peer, an advocacy support group um, for folks that are going through recovery, addiction and recovery. Um, and we put it in our policy 
a few years ago that anyone that is belongs to the Nisna um, contract, it's a requirement that they have to participate with SPAN. If they go into treatment, yes. if they come out of an inpatient treatment or even yeah. outpatient, they have to. Yes. Yep. And really, uh, the feedback that I've had um, is SPAN has been an amazing uh, resource to be able to connect folks, to be able to get them programs or support that they need. So it's only been hugely positive. And, and really, um, we had uh, an interview, or there was an interview, Joyce Niebush is the um, coordinator for the Adirondack region. And uh, she helped me uh, make sure that we have a program here uh, locally as well as um, helping make sure that it was embedded in our policy. And she was interviewed in Watertown a couple of years ago and said if there was a gold standard in New York State for a hospital taking care of their own, it would see be Champlain Valley Physicians Hospital. Wow. Do you know you bring wow. up a, a, that's a great statement. And if you think about all the community leaders I've talked to over the years here, there's something unique about this community and this area that we have that, uh, and I, maybe a lot of communities say it, I've been a lot of places in this country, we have something unique here. We're, we really do have this level of compassion for people that isn't necessarily available everywhere else. And it's not surprising that you guys are rated as the gold standard for that. And I, I know some people that have belonged to that SPAN program and, and it, it's, you're taking a page right out of the recovery textbook, which is peer-to-peer -peer advocacy about people that have been through the same thing to be able to have like-minded stuff without a power structure. There's not somebody that's in charge. It's just, we're just here trying to help each other. Nobody's exactly. better or smarter than anybody else. We're just here saying we've all struggled with this. How do we help each other? And, and you know, I know people that have come into outside recovery rooms as a result of meeting people at your programs. And somebody met them and said, hey, come try this too you know, you might like this. So it's working, it's absolutely. It I mean, that's the, that's the data that shows, without having actual data, that's the data that shows that it's um, actually working. So we've, uh, you know, we've, we've you know, been navigating for healthcare people, the, the changes that COVID presented, both change in jobs, probably an increase in suffering and, and death and the pressure of, I think, a sense of safety, even within the workplace, right? I mean, all of a sudden, what, what was a you know we're we're in a healthcare setting and it's a reasonably safe place, but now this this you know this global infectious disease is now this big plague that's just descended upon us. Uh, you know, back the world of vaccinations has come into play and is offering, I think, some relief. Do you find that 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 things are getting back to n feeling like they're getting back to normal? Oh my goodness, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that smile. It's like, I oh, know. thank God, yes, yes. Get vaccinated, please. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so within Oc Health, I mean, we we have different service lines uh, supporting. Uh, uh, workers' comp, case management for CVPH, for external groups, for or external companies within the community. Um, we also do employer services, so pre-employment, post-accident, um, urine drug screen, breath alcohol testing. And, and that all just stopped. 
and our life became um, COVID, uh, an employee with symptoms would need to call to get screened. Um, an employee with travel, which initially travel was certainly not something that was initially an, an issue. Um, and then post-exposure. We ended up pulling in uh, about eight staff members into our group running seven days a week just to be able to manage the volumes. We had pages and pages of employees names up on the wall and what stage they were throughout. It was, it was immense. Wow. It's like in a light switch, everything about the way we operated just changed. It, it did. Was the, like it, instantaneously, it it's like throw everything you knew out the window, here's what we're living. And I think you made a point earlier in this where, and it changed every two or three days. Like it was us even yeah. running our very small business realistically. We're monitoring this stuff every couple of days because the policies are changing so rapidly and we're doing this. Nope, never mind. We're going over this way. Oh, stop. Wait, we're going it was cr and I can't imagine in healthcare that it had to be 100 times worse than it what was, we were even dealing it with. It was crazy. It was crazy. So, um, and then the vaccine uh, we kept hearing that it was coming, it was coming, it was coming, and then um, all of a sudden, within a couple of weeks, it's here, and how are you gonna do it? And we had uh, the requirement that whatever vaccine we received, it had to be in an arm before seven days. Um, there was also requirements around prioritizing your staff, your frontline staff, of who gets it first, um, and working through that. At that point, we didn't know. Uh, there were uh, information. There was information coming in that there was going to be symptoms post-vaccine. Oh. So instead of just going into the emergency room and vaccinating all of the folks in the ER, you had to look at the actual shift. Right. And we're only going to vaccinate one third of that shift. Because, because when we vaccinated case, everybody, yeah. we could have nobody coming to work. <laughs> right. Shift, right? We could right. shut the, right. the emergency room <laughs> right. down. So it was real, the strategic uh, work that it took behind the scenes to try and make sure that we weren't going to leave the organization without being able to support, support the community at one of the most difficult times. That was a huge, huge Now the deal. hospital didn't mandate vaccines for employees, is that no. right? So no. what did you have for a, do you have a, 80, 90% vaccination rate, do you know? 84%. Uh, 84%. Right. That's, that's higher than higher what than I, I hear in a lot of other arenas. We, uh, our, our folks certainly um, have recognized the need for the vaccine. Yeah. It's the only way we're going to move forward out of... Get back to normal. You want your normal right, life back with right? the vaccine. Uh, and, yeah. and like you asked, uh, is it somewhat normal now? And it feels like it's heading in that direction, which is wonderful. I will tell you the, the hospital, you know, we have the MHAB facility and we have about 100 residents over there. And when the vaccines first came out and they had the drive-through clinic opened, you know, so we told people that you can go sign up for the drive-through clinic because you live in congregate care. And we had, I think, six people sign up because a lot of them didn't have cars. And we called Betsy and I know Wouter and we called the hospital and, and they came over and actually did a vaccination did a on our site. Right on and site. I think we wound up with over 50 of our residents being willing to do it when you made it easy for them. How awesome and it's just that? another one of those things that you say, 
if we help the people who are less fortunate, they're willing to do this stuff. Yeah. But they're, if you make it too hard and there's too many barriers, they just go, ah, never mind, I'm not going to do that. Exactly. It, like, and there's a, a, there's a perfect example of how it practically changed. You know, we went from six to yeah. over 50 just because we said, rather than making you go there, we'll come to you. Are you willing to do it? Like it was that dramatic by doing something so simple. So, and that's what we're, we're starting to do because vaccine now isn't, it, the restrictions on it isn't uh, so tight that we're actually able to offer to our community right. employers that will come in and vaccinate your people. It was wonderful. I want to just give kudos to uh, Carrie Howard Canning. That's right. Oh That's who it was. Yeah. So Carrie she was, was the one fabulous. we were sitting yeah, in. A, we great. were sitting in a board meeting, and and we had made this comment that you know this drive-through vaccination site is fabulous, except for those that don't have cars. <laughs> and that it's little. We want we want to give access to service, and she almost instantly said, "I got you." And uh, and so how and, and once again the response of this community, the response of our hospital to to say, "I see you," and now I hear you. It's not just a problem. Let's just let's just put smart people together. They put and up solve no. It. It I mean, realistically, zero resistance. They were like, "Oh, that's right. You have a congregate living. You can't. Have, okay, we'll come over. We'll ding, do it. Ding, let's ding, figure ding, out ding, a day. Ding. Let's get as many people signed up as we can. Like just." Like it was not even an ask. It wasn't like, oh, we're too busy. We have COVID. Leave oh, us alone. No, it was no. a, just a great that thing. Certainly recognized that that was our priority in that in that moment. I mean, CBPH has vaccinated over eight thousand people. Awesome. Alice Lovely. Hyde vaccinated over three thousand people. Wow. Um, so wow. way beyond um, our own. Really, the group one A was supporting all of those high risk groups. Get them vaccinated. At Alice Hyde, we actually shut down um, our office, the Oc Health office, and we use that as a vaccination site. Wow. So the congregate settings, a lot of uh, folks would arrive in minivans, in cars, and and are disabled. Right, they're not able to come in. So we were gowned up, run right outside, doing it. Uh, whatever it needed to be to vaccinate our folks. So it's it's nice when people look at the regulations and understand we have to adhere to certain things. But the idea is to get people vaccinated. So if I got to run out and do it at somebody's car, let's that's, just go out and do it at somebody's that's car. That's exactly what like, we did. Let's just be done. Yes. I want to switch gears and ask you a couple of questions, and you certainly can refrain from answering these. Does the medical or and the legalization of recreational marijuana? What kind of effect has that had on staff at the hospital? Um, I haven't seen any negative outcome. Uh, we don't test for marijuana upon hire, right? Um, but we do test for marijuana if it was under reasonable suspicion, yeah. mm -hmm. which seems to reasonable be reasonable suspicion, incident or accident. Does that also fall? Do you do it or just reasonable suspicion? So reasonable suspicion, it, it could be post-accident um, if there was suspicion that the person was, right, if it was reasonable suspicion yep. was tied in with that. Tied to but we, we wouldn't just do post-accident for no reason. And does somebody having a medical marijuana card preclude them on any level from working anywhere in the hospital or is that not even addressed? No, really. Uh, I mean, if you look at medical marijuana, um, somebody can't be at work under the influence. It doesn't matter whether it's alcohol or prescription medication or recreational drugs. They, when they come to work, they have to be able 
to function in the capacity that they're, right? So you've just put it in the, yes, you, so you put it in the same category as if you're prescribed oxy for a pain thing, you can't come to work if you're on that until Correct. you're not on it. Anymore. So you can't, sure. you yeah. can't smoke it while you're at work, you <laughs> right. can't bring it to work, and you can't come to work impaired. Right. Really, I mean, that's, that, yeah. that's really the space. That so no different than the no. kind of just any other prescription that you would treat. And the other question along those lines, and this one might even be more touchy, is the whole um, prescribing of opioids. And I think that it's interesting that the story that you tell about your brother, that's how he got involved. Car accident, prescribed opioids from doctors. And, you know, I did a, I did a pretty good teardown of Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family on a podcast, and I have my own beliefs about that. But in the, in the medical world, it, you know, those of us that are in the addiction world think that sometimes drugs flow a little freely from some of the people who work in the field and maybe they don't understand addiction as well as they should. So, so I would agree with that a number of years ago, um, that that may have been the case, right? I mean, um, I, I had, I had instances where I, uh, would connect with family members that or, or family from the community that they had a family member that was coming to the hospital um, with different complaints each time getting uh, treated with narcotics. And, and they called and complained and said, why? Why are you prescribing? I don't feel like we're in that space anymore. Um, opiate abuse, uh, the addiction to opiates is so prevalent. I think the use of opiates has drastically declined. Dropped. So we've educated people in the healthcare field about you can't just be giving this stuff out like it's candy. It's no. highly addictive. So can I tell a story? Because I did in my research, I thought it was really interesting. So there's a there's a gentleman named William Stewart Halstead. He is the father of modern American surgery. And uh, he, uh, he pioneered the use of local anesthesia. Pretty good research. But then became, but through, his, through this use of local anesthesia, he became a cocaine addict and was then institutionalized in 1886 for his addiction and was given a second chance after he came out of treatment. So this is back in the 1800s. Wow. A doctor who said, we, you know, we, can, we can apply this substance, some variation derivative of cocaine for local anesthesia, but he used it on himself and became an addict. When he got institutionalized for his addiction and then came out, he was given a second chance to practice medicine by William Welch at John Hopkins Hospital, and Dr. William Stuart Halstead became the first chairman of surgery um, at John, Johns Hopkins. And so this kind of history of, 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 of addiction seated in narcotic use really is foundational to, I think, this particular development of what I think has, has been, you know, 
probably more impactful than anything else in modern medicine to be able to heal people through the use of local anesthesia that allows for surgeries, invasive surgeries, because we have a way to, for people to be able to live through the pain of having a surgery. But it also was part of, I think, what created this platform for potential use or abuse of drugs. I just, I just thought that was a really fascinating Did you actually part. research that? I or did somebody tell did. you that story? Come on. I read about this guy uh, in my very isn't that, impressive. isn't that fascinating? And I and I think about uh, in this particular topic of recovery and healthcare that there is this fine line between the use of prescription medication in the in the world of healing and what can happen, and and this fine line of of healthcare and and caring for people from both a, a physical and an emotional level, and and the impact on healthcare workers to be around pain, suffering. And, and to have to have to keep your your mind as a nurse or a caregiver about you in a way that, that you're not taken down the dark path of what of what health issues can can do to people. So the work that the, the healthcare workers do so ungodly important to the overall health of our community, but the support of, of your department and division um, for both the healthcare workers and our and our community is vital to uh, you know, to really this kind of global health moment, and and so. So as we as we kind of near the end of this, what what can we do as a community to support healthcare and healthcare workers? And that I, I will tell you, as a an active member of the recovery community, I am friends with a lot of people who work in healthcare, who you know are clean and have their life together and doing all that. So, uh, but there's I don't want to call it a divide, but there's maybe a lack of understanding on our part, the same way that we say there's a lack of understanding on people who aren't afflicted with the illness of addiction who don't understand us. What can we do? Is there anything that we could do better to kind of support you guys? Anything that you would like to see the community do? Oh my gosh. How's that for a loaded <laughs> question wow. for you? Wow. <laughs> um, so I think just building relationships within um, the support teams, the the businesses that we have that specialize in this. For for me to pick up the phone and call the director of uh, company X Y Z that deals with recovery and support, and say I have an employee in my office that needs to be seen this afternoon or mm -hmm. first thing tomorrow morning yeah. and they make it happen. Yeah. I mean, that that is what Critical. is needed mm -hmm. to be able to support. As you indicated earlier, if you don't strike in that moment, mm -hmm. you may lose that opportunity. You may yeah. lose that person. Yeah. And I don't ever want any of our family members at CVPH to go through what my family went through. Yeah. Yeah. We are pushing hard as a society locally we we talk about it often that, and I, I will tell you that the providers in this area um, whether it's Champlain Valley BHSN St. Joe's and there's a boatload of others but any of them you're a hundred percent right I pick up the phone and call and instantaneously I get as much access as they're capable of giving me and even if they don't have a bed right then they'll say let me make a call to one of these other places maybe yeah. we can get them here let me it, yeah. they really 
we really do go out of our way to say you have to strike when the iron is hot because right. tomorrow the iron might not be hot and we may lose that opportunity and you know when you lose those opportunities this is Russian roulette when you're talking about addiction and and it, it, it really is that dangerous as evidenced by your own personal story and Absolutely. the personal stories of, of many others what was your brother's name Michael 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 oh, great name now I even yeah. feel more you know, connected, connected and, uh, I will tell you that uh, he was a great brother he was a great brother. He ended up. Well, um, we are. It's in the name, right? Ah. So it, it, yeah. That's it. He he called me. Um, he had never been away on vacation. My wife and I had uh, a timeshare, and you can cut this out if you want. But they they had a timeshare. Uh, we had, we had a timeshare in Florida. So um, he came down with us. He wasn't going to. I actually was afraid that if we left him at home, that we were going to come home and he was going to be. Um, had taken his life so the morning that we were leaving I bought him a ticket for Christmas and uh, went over and he wasn't going he wasn't going he wasn't going finally the morning we have the cars packed we're ready to leave and I go over and he had this tiny little suitcase that was like for a five-year-old <laughs> and and he had put a few clothes in there and he w said I'm coming with you and uh, and so we went down and on the sixth day my wife and I were, were uh, going to be heading home. He came to me and he said, I don't want to go home. Because not only did he have um, uh, addiction issues, he also had Lyme disease. So the heat, heat helped, yeah. was so, it changed for him. Um, oh, so the, the pain, the, 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 pain. the, the joint pain, oh, yes. the body pain from the Lyme disease was helped down in Florida. Yeah, exactly, really? exactly. So... Um, he, I said to him, I said, Michael, I've got five weeks in the bank. If you want to stay here all five weeks, we'll just keep calling every week. And he had never stayed alone. He had never traveled before. He ended up, he stayed down there for the five weeks. On week four, he called me and said, I bought plane tickets for you and Lynn to come down and, and spend the weekend with me. Uh, we flew down and he had rented a Lamborghini. What? Yeah, we oh. we uh, were trucking around in a Lamborghini for the weekend. It oh was. Oh my! Uh, I mean, that's just who he was. He was such an amazing brother. Oh, what a great memory yes. to have. Yes, it really is. What a great memory. So I want to tell you. I want to say thank you for coming and thank you yeah. for being really, really candid about uh, about your own personal uh, story, which is always great. I think that has that. It's, it's great what we all do professionally. When people tell personal stories, it resonates. It, it means so much more to people, and I just think it gives instant credibility. And, and what you do at the hospital is really phenomenal. And I, I will tell you, without meeting you, I've heard your name mentioned before by people that, that you've helped and the hospital has helped. And, and uh, that's just great stuff because, you know, the idea of losing people to this illness and whether it's an overdose or suicide or whatever is just uh, maddening to me and it hurts and tugs at my heart every time I hear it and you know when the day comes and it probably won't happen in my lifetime but when the day comes that we eradicate this completely so that everybody can have a chance at a great life will be a wonderful day and, and you know I work my ass off and I think you do and Betsy does to try to make that happen so I, I really am appreciative of you uh, of you coming and sharing your thoughts great stuff. We're Thank so you. glad to have you as part of the CVPH and Alice Hyde family and team and uh, and you obviously are somebody that this work means something to you 
both professionally, personally, and those are the people that can really, I'm going to use the term move the needle, and I don't mean it like <laughs> that, can know. make the change, can affect change. Um, well, we're, we're, I'm so happy because the teams that I have at both um, Alice Hyde and Champlain Valley are amazing. And many of our folks have lived through life events. And I have six members of the SISM team, the critical incident, are my staff that wanted to be able to take part in that and help others. So I mean, it's just great the stuff. whole team is so dedicated to that. It's great. So thank you again for coming. We're going to wrap this up and I'm going to tell you that, you know, I, I do have a quote that's kind of a cute quote, but I, I think it's important in light of the story that you told to remember that uh, suicide is real and addiction is real and it happens. And, uh, you know, if you're in a position where you're struggling with either one of those things, you don't have to do this alone. There are countless resources out there, whether it's our website or any of the other places, but please just raise your hand and reach out and say, I'm not okay. You know, I have a sweatshirt that says it's okay to not be okay, and it is okay to not be okay. So, um, you know, this is important, heavy stuff, and, you know, we like to have a lot of fun on these podcasts, but we also like to be informative and talk to people about the real stuff that goes on in the world and the fact that these events really change us dramatically for the rest of our lives, and we don't want to see other people go through that. So I'm just impressed, and in awe. I, I don't usually get rocked at this podcast. Usually we kind of know what to expect, and I will tell you that um, you caught me off guard with that story, and I'm, I'm incredibly appreciative that you were willing to share it. Um, do you have any final thoughts that you want to I I, I really don't. I, I, I Well, I do. Of course I you have do. something I to say, <laughs> but, you know, healthcare is, uh, you know, is such a hot hot button topic for for our society and 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 it is the one industry that we we rely on 24 hours a day seven days a week 365 days a year I think it's a it's a, 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 a political uh, a political football that gets thrown around and I think that there are so many layers to health care that it's just it's kind of like democracy it's a really great idea and it's a really difficult concept to 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 enact with any degree of uh, of of easy success so so um, I, I'm grateful so much for the healthcare um, uh, people that we have uh, in our community trying to make a difference and and uh, so I I really uh, I really want to thank you for for your work um, both over your 23 years, uh, you know, early on, emergency room work is not for the faint of heart. Um, mm -hmm. And then this work that you now are doing, I want to thank you for uh, for doing doing this. It's going to going to make a difference. And thanks for coming to the podcast and and hanging next out. Time, with next time, next time you come, we'll have air conditioning in here. <laughs> I promise. So when you come back, it will be a little cooler, or we'll bring you back in the winter. Yeah. And I don't have a hoodie on because I can't wear it. We didn't. You know what? We didn't think about this. Right, in the <laughs> we beginning. didn't think like, it was ever going to get that warm. That it was going to be hot in the summer. <laughs> I can't wear a hoodie, so now I'm going to have to get t-shirts designed to be. So we're gonna. You're gonna have to help me do that. All right. So we'll have to come up with some t-shirt. And um, I have a quote that's kind of a cute quote for today that doesn't right. have a whole lot to do with this, but it was a very dear friend of mine who died a few years ago and he was sober when he died. And he said that when you think about the word luck, luck in luck. life, luck is a loser's excuse for a winner's position. Think about that. Luck is so a loser's, loser's excuse, excuse for, for a, a winner's, winner's position. 
In other words, when people say, I don't have any luck, they're usually the people who something didn't go well. And what the statement about that is that luck has nothing to do with it. We create our own luck. We create our own chances. We take our own choices. We do things like that. So there's one for everybody to think about today. Not I see Brittany. Brittany's, Brittany's going Brittany I don't doesn't, know that I, I, don't Brittany know that doesn't I agree like with that. that. Brittany doesn't like that one, and it's okay. Brittany doesn't have to like that one, and we can fight. Know. But that's the quote we're using for today. I you don't be, like that one? I might be on Bryn's team with this one. Whatever. Too bad. Do you have a better one? No, I thought I came to the table with some really you did. You great, had some great really, stuff. Do you I had have to really like craft a quote? Yeah. Telly, do Telly, you have what one? What do you got? What's your what quote? What do you got? No, wait, oh, wait, say. wait. No, before we go. <laughs> before we go, we, Telly's running out of memory, so we have to shut down. But I can't get off this podcast without saying, we di- I didn't even one time, except for right now, say that you're responsible for your daughter's addiction. Oh, <laughs> but I wanted to remind God, everybody that you are responsible jackass. for your daughter's addiction. So we're, we're good to go now. Thank you with that. Thanks We're so M Hab out. We'll M-Hab see you next. Out. We'll see you next week. Thanks a bunch. Thanks for joining us today at Recovery Uncovered. No matter where you are in your recovery journey, or if you're supporting the recovery journey of a loved one, just know today is the first day of the rest of your life. Visit our website at mhab.org. And if you want to become an old-timer in recovery, don't use and don't die. This has been Recovery Uncovered.